in the book of Hebrews this morning, continuing through our study of the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 6. This morning we're going to look at verses 9 through 12 of Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12 this morning. I'll be reading these verses from the English Standard Version this morning, Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name and serving the saints as you still do. We desired each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Today's message is things that belong to salvation. Things that belong to salvation. This morning in this introduction, it's, it's um, kind of like an introduction and the first point all rolled into one, even though I do not have it that way in your notes this morning. But I'm doing it this way because I believe it really sets the tone for the rest of what I need to say this morning concerning this passage of Scripture. Last week we noted that within the church there are those who may indeed be false believers. The author of Hebrews makes this clear. And uh, even Jesus made it clear when Jesus gave the parable of the soils. The first three soils in that parable that Jesus Gives yield absolutely no fruit. However, the fourth soil does yield fruit. And Jesus even explains it when he says, As for what is sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. A faith that is a living faith, uh, is authentic and it produces fruit. Jesus turns around and says essentially the same thing at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And we clearly see that there are those that may have a profession of faith and may even have a great experience, but that does not equal authentic Christianity. And now here's the problem. Sometimes as Christians... We want to be the ones to point ourselves, uh, to appoint ourselves as the spiritual fruit inspectors and use our own subjective, fallible criteria to declare whether someone is indeed a Christian or not. And we like to use that, that term or that language to say, well, I'm just uh, inspecting their fruit, but oftentimes when we say that we're inspecting someone's fruit, we're not 
We're not using it in an area of sin, but instead we're using it in an area of preference. Well, this is what I like to do. This is, this is my preference, and I'm going to hold you to that preference. Nowhere do we find Scripture ever backing that up. Jesus knew this would happen, and he gave another parable of weeds. And in this parable, Jesus talks about an enemy that sows weeds in with the wheat. And so the weeds look just like the wheat. And, and the, the implication is clear, right? We just talked about it last week, how the scripture makes it clear that there are those in the church who will look like Christians, who if we just looked at them, we would think that they're Christians because everything about them appears to be Christian. But watch this. Jesus, in the parable of the weeds, Listen to what he says at the end of that parable. The servants asked the master, then do you want us to go and gather them, referring to the weeds? And Jesus says in that parable, but he said, no, less than gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. Listen, some Christians are so zealous to get rid of the weeds that we often are pulling up the wheat. Generally, we can look at the way someone lives and we can discern the authenticity of their faith by the way they live. And we should be discerning enough to confront when someone's life is fruitless and we see that their life is fruitless or a brother or sister in Christ is living in sin, we should confront those things. However, we have to be careful that in our confronting, that we are confronting through sin. And remember that there are those in our church who may not even be true believers. And so we have to be careful that we're not just confronting preferences or things that we like. And we must be careful that we are not so focused on uprooting weeds that we uproot the wheat. But what about pastorally? What should be done um, pastorally by, let's say, the pastor? That is why I'm thankful for the book of Hebrews. And in particular, these verses that we looked at this morning. The author knows that there are those in the church who just heard the strong warning that he has delivered. But he also knows that the warning he gave did not describe the majority of the church. So he doesn't want people to be discouraged in their faith. And so he follows up the rebuke by letting them know that it came uh, not out of anger, but out of love. In verse 9, the author changes his focus from that strong rebuke to instead... The idea of encouragement. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. He's speaking out of love. So for the first and actually the only time, he addresses them as beloved. And that's critical. Well, let me tell you why it's critical. Because he is still talking to the same group of people. And he doesn't specify. He doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, those words that I said earlier when I was talking about, you know, the problems and all that and people being 
false uh, believers. Those words I said earlier, they weren't to the beloved. And now these words I'm going to say are to the beloved. That's not what he says. You say, well, why is that important? But Well, because in, in society today and in the world in general, we have a warped sense of what love actually is. You see, we, we equate love with feelings. Right? What do we say when we know we have done something that hurts someone's feelings? Often we hear this comment, well, that was unloving. That was unloving. And I'm just going to say that's ridiculous. We are held hostage today by feelings. That is, the society we live in, everyone is held hostage by someone else's feelings. And so instead of saying what is best for someone, instead of saying what, what is going to be most beneficial to someone, we tailor our speech and our actions based upon how that person's going to feel about what we are about to say or do. And what this means is instead of being loving, we tend to be unloving. And so instead of saying what is best for someone and truthful for someone, we change our language to, to be half-truths or just lies and, and not what is beneficial to that person. Let me give you the easiest example that I can possibly think of in, in ways that we say things that, that because we're so afraid that what we're going to say is going to hurt someone's feelings. Okay, this is the easiest example I can think of. Uh, if you're married, your wife comes in in something that looks totally ridiculous. And she says, how does this look? And you say, fine. Right? Oh, that looks fine. No, it doesn't. It looks ridiculous. And it's unloving for you to let her walk out of the house that way. So do the loving thing and say, that looks ridiculous. Okay? That's the, that's the loving thing to say. And so that's the easiest example I can think. But that's what we do in our society with everything. You see, we've, we've stretched the boundaries of that idea to everyone and anyone. Oh, oh, I, I better watch what I say. It might hurt their feet. And, and that's what we think instead of what is most beneficial to that person. The author has just said, some of the hardest things he could possibly say. And then he follows it up with the word beloved. He tells them, okay, he has told them they're dull of hearing. They're like babies stuck on milk. He says some of them had, had had religious experiences, but they are not saved. And then he says, beloved, I love you. We live in a nation of whiners and powders and thin-skinned people. And as Christians, we can't be that way. We are children of God. I love what John Piper says when he says this. <clears throat> we are chosen by God, loved by God, forgiven by God, accepted by God, indwelt by God, guided by God, protected by God, strengthened by God, and God is more important than anyone else in the entire universe. We do not have to feel vulnerable or insecure. We don't have to be self-justifying or self-defensive or self-pitying. We can be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, as James says, 
in James 1.19. We can be like Paul who said, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. And when we are slandered, we try to conciliate. So the author of Hebrews is saying, after he said all of this stuff, that we would say, boy, that seems unloving. He says, I love you. And then he tells them that they feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He hopes that the people that were being tempted to turn from Christ will heed the warning that he has delivered to them. But now he wants to encourage the congregation to work towards maturity, that they will have the full assurance of hope until the end. I want to be abundantly clear that the author is saying these things belong to salvation. He does not say at any point that these things cause salvation. He says they belong to salvation. When he says that those things belong to salvation, he is saying that logically, logically, these things are associated with salvation. So what he is saying is faithfully serving the saints and a love for God is logically associated with with salvation. So I want to break that down for us this morning. So sit tight. There's always, first of all, what I want us to see is there's always evidence of true salvation. There is always evidence of true salvation. I understand there are people that think it is possible to be saved and never have evidence of that salvation in your life whatsoever. And I find that to be biblically inaccurate. Look at verse 10. And notice the language that he says. He says, your work, action word, and the love that you have shown, action word, and serving the saints, action word. All of these phrases point to some sort of visible manifestation of salvation. The author could look at the lives of those in the Hebrew church and see that they no longer live for themselves, but they now live for the purpose of serving others. Their salvation resulted in evidence that was very much visible to other people, that they could see that these people were saved. He refers to this again in chapter 10 when he calls to remembrance how they had helped others when the church had begun. And they unselfishly were committed to each other. How so? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that question. Because he says this in the former days they had endured public reproach and affliction they had compassion on those who were in prison and then he says they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property that's what he says in chapter 10 why he tells us because they they know they had a better possession and an abiding one that was in heaven. They, they gave themselves to others. What a lifestyle of compassion they, exil- they, they, they exhibited in their life. It was not just in their past because he also says, as you still do. And so they continued on in this lifestyle. There was evidence of their salvation. It is clear that if we have faith in Christ, it will be manifested in our life. Now, these are not only the evidences of salvation, but the point is that there is uh, evidence of salvation. If you want to see more evidence of salvation, you can uh, turn to the book of 1 John, where many evidences of genuine faith are listed out for us. The Christian life will display signs of a new birth. 
plain and simple. And it may be at varying rates, like we looked at before, but nevertheless, there will be signs. The good soil always yields a crop. Always yields a crop. And if it yields thorn and thistles, it's not good soil. This is always evidence, or there is always evidence of true salvation. The text shows us at least one example, that which is compassion towards others, which actually leads us to the second point. To faithfully serve the saints out of love for God belongs to salvation. To faithfully serve the saints out of love for God belongs to salvation. This is exactly what he's talking about in verse 10. He's speaking of serving the saints and serving them out of love for God. In other words, out of the overflow of our love for the Lord, we should serve the saints. Or another way of putting it is this. We love God so much that we genuinely desire to serve one another. Well, what if you don't feel like serving one another? Well, that is perhaps a reflection of your love for God. So let's look at it. We are motivated to serve by our love for God. We are motivated to serve by our love for God. The author writes in verse 10, The love that you have shown for His name and serving the saints as you still do. And so he makes it clear, by loving the saints, we are showing our love for God or our love for the Lord. We know the chief commandment is that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. That is what Jesus said when He was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And then He says this, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see that second commandment hinges on the first commandment. To love your neighbor, you must love God. That is just the way it is. But here's what I find profound. We don't just wake up one morning and decide that we're going to love God. You, you didn't just wake up one, well, you know what, today's the day that I'm going to love God. Why do we love God? Well, listen to the words of Jesus. What He said in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Okay, so we are supposed to love one another. But look what He says. Just as I, Jesus speaking, just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. So how are we to love one another? As He loved us. So His love for us came before our love for one another. And we can truly love one another because He first loved us. He is the example. Now, let's go even further. Some people say, well, well, I can't love so-and-so. Or it's so hard to love this person then we say those kinds of things. But the only way that we can love God or one another is because God first loved us. How so? Well, the Bible tells us how so. Romans 5, 6-8 For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, but God chose His love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. First John 4.19 We love because He first loved us. 
You see, if you are struggling with loving another believer, if you say, well, pastor, I can't, I just can't love so-and-so, then that's a reflection of your lack of love for God. And the only reason we can truly love one another in the first place is because God first loved you. Now today, if we went and spent some time with a psychologist or even a preacher who tends to lean towards secular humanism, they would tell you something along the lines of this. You need to learn to love yourself before you can love God or others. That's what they would say. You need to learn to love yourself. That's what we hear. We hear that a lot. I've heard preachers preach that. And that sounds nice on the surface. And it makes us feel good. makes us feel good about ourselves. Oh, okay. I need to learn to love myself. But it's an absolute perversion of Scripture. And specifically the commandments that Jesus gave. And they, they, so what they say is this. See, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, you must love yourself first. But that's not what the commandment is saying. It's not saying, love yourself first. It's not at all what it's saying. Instead, it's assuming that every single one of us already knows that we love ourselves. That's the assumption in the commandment. That you know that you love yourself. Even the person that is self-deprecating loves themselves. You know why? Because they are completely focused on self. If they care about others as much as they focus on self, they would obey the command. You say, well, well, Pastor, what about someone who's suicidal? They surely do not love themselves, but that's exactly what they are doing. Loving themselves more than others because they are not thinking of the effect of taking their own life and how it would have an effect on other people. They are instead thinking only of how they can escape their problem regardless of how it devastates others which is self-focused you're still loving yourself it doesn't matter that's what the commandment's saying it's assuming that everyone knows that they love you that they love themselves you say so when we hear oh you need to learn to love yourself no you don't you already love yourself and the commandment assumes it some of you ate breakfast before you came here. You know why? Because you loved yourself. When you get done with church this morning, some of you are going to go out to a restaurant and get something to eat. You know why? Because you love yourself. We take care of ourselves. You Praise the Lord that everyone has clothes on. You know why? Because you love yourself. You take care of yourself. So the commandment is assuming that you love yourself. Look what the author says. The love that you have shown for His name. That's speaking of all that God is. In fact, in the Greek, it is His nature and His attributes. So it's saying the love that you've shown for God's nature and His attributes. The love you've shown for who God is. Our love for God's name is the basis of all that we do. 
We desire for the glory of God to be exalted over everything. And that is to love His name. Do you remember when when Jesus met with Peter? If you've read this passage of Scripture, and Peter and the disciples had returned to go back and do some more fishing after the death of Jesus, which is not what they were supposed to be doing in the first place, but they're out there fishing. And the resurrected Jesus comes along the shore, and He asks them, hey, How's the fishing going out there? And it's not so good. And he tells him, cast your net on the other side of the boat and, and you will find fish. And they find so many fish that they can't pull in the net. And John turns to Peter and he says, it is the Lord. Peter jumps out of the boat and here it gets there to the shore and there's Jesus with a fire built. And fish already cooking. We have no idea where it came from, by the way. It's an interesting passage to study. But there's Jesus. He's got fish already cooking. That's not the point. Here's the point. They get done eating. Jesus three times asked Peter if he loved other men, right? And that way he said, Peter, do you love other people? Nope. That's not what he says. Jesus asked Peter if he loved him. And after each time, he says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, feed my sheep. Actually, the first time he says, feed my lambs, that's a whole other sermon. But he, he says, feed my sheep. And the point is, Jesus says, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. We can never truly love others. Until we love Christ. Peter had to love Christ before he could feed the sheep. John MacArthur says we can never love men, saved or unsaved, lovable or unlovable, until we properly love Christ. We are motivated to serve by our love for God. One last thing here to look at in verse 10. It says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. God does not overlook our work. These people had already suffered. And they were faced with more suffering. And when we're going through times of suffering and hurt and heartache and pain, we're vulnerable. I've been there. I've heard the lies of the enemy telling me, what has the life dedicated to Christ gotten you? What has being a pastor gotten you? You've served the Lord and this is how God takes care of you? You see, Satan whispers those lies so that we can somehow sit in judgment of God and declare Him unjust. God, you're not just. You're not treating me fairly. Or to think that He must have forgotten all about us. Well, God, have you forgotten me? And the author says, God is not unjust to overlook your work. He's not forgotten you. And then he reveals that that our inheritance is in the promise of God. Christian, let me tell you this morning. Maybe this morning you're facing a hardship or a trial. Maybe you're going through something. Maybe it's spiritually. Maybe it's emotionally. Maybe it's physically. God, what do I do with this? I'm, I'm hurting. God, I have, I have sickness or I have 
cancer. I'm depressed. God, what, what am I going to do? God, do you still love me? God, this friend of mine, they hurt me. I've been in church for a long time and I've been let down. Other Christians have said terrible things about me, God. Listen to me. God has not forgotten you. God is not unjust. He knows all you have done for Him. Do not buy the lie of the enemy. Don't go having a pity party. Don't isolate yourself from other believers because your feelings are hurt because at that point, Satan has you right where he wants you. God has not forgotten. Do you love his name? And do you seek his glory? Secondly, loving others displays our love for God. Loving others displays our love for God. Listen, the verse says that they served the saints and still were serving the saints. The author of Hebrews says that their service of the saints displayed their love for God. The objects of their love were the saints. Let me ask you, how well do you love others? There are many people in many ways that are in distress. Have we ever bothered to stop and think that perhaps the reason why the Lord has allowed others to fall on hard times is so that you might have the privilege of ministering to that other person? Have you ever thought about it like that? Have you ever looked at the hard times that someone else was in and say, oh, this, this is an opportunity for me to minister to them? That's why right, I said privilege. Here's the thing, we don't, we don't minister to them because we're all sentimental or because we need to ease our conscience or to brag or to gain some sort of reputation. We do it because we love the name of God. Do you get that? We love God so much and we want His glory to spread so much that we love others, not just in word, but in deed as well. We love others and our motivation is our love for God. And when we lack love for others, we lack love for God. We do this out of submission to the revealed will of God. We know that it is the will of God to love others and to give to others. And, and our problem is that we just don't want to do it. We say things like, well, what if they take advantage of me? Or what if, what if I, I never see that money again? Or what if, or, or what if, or what if, or what if, or what if? You say, well, pastor, how do I, how do I know I'm supposed to love others like you say? Not it's a reflection of my love for God. Well, great question. I'm glad you asked that. Let's read 1 John, or let me read for you 1 John 4, 7-12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Or if that's not convincing enough, let's just 
Look at the words of Jesus. He's telling a parable about the final judgment and he's dividing the sheep from the goats and the king tells the sheep to come inherit the kingdom prepared for them before the foundations of the world. And Jesus says this, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And of course the people asked, when did this happen? And in Matthew 25 verse 40, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. It's not salvation by works. Nor do we love others to somehow put God into our debt. That's impossible but rather God performs what He has promised and it is based on His grace and our love towards other people. Therefore, our love for God is our primary motive for everything that we do concerning Christian service. And loving others displays our love for God. But you know what? It takes work. Loving others takes work. Do you notice what he said? God does not overlook your work and the love you've shown. The word work is actively directed towards making or doing something. To love others takes effort. It's not, it's not going to just happen. I don't care how many times that you hear it, we don't just fall in love. We fall into an emotional response sometimes, but we don't fall into love. Because if we fall into love, then we can fall out of love. Love is work. And the author encourages the Hebrews to show the same earnestness in verse 11. And then he tells them not to be sluggish, which is slow and apathetic, but through their faith and patience to be imitators of those who inherit the promises. The context is clear. It's not easy to love others all the time. It actually takes work on our behalf. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You know, when I, when I ran my marathon, I was not able to just go to the end of the marathon and pick up my medal and say, well, that was nice. I actually had to run the marathon. Can you believe that? They made me run all 26 miles. It was 18 weeks of training I was committed to. And I, I was, I'm going to run this thing. It's the same way with loving others. We have to commit to it. And there are times that we won't want to do it. And we'd rather be lazy But we have to commit. Yes, we may have rewards during the race, during the run, just like I did in the marathon. They gave me those little gel packets and I could fuel up on those and drink water to keep me going. We could experience some reward, but the true reward is at the end. Loving others as Christians is not optional. We don't get to say, well, well, I'm not going to do it. We just do it because it's who we are. It's hard work. It's exhausting. It's tiring. But you know why we fail? 
You know why we do, don't do it like we should? Because we're not loving God like we should. There's no way around it, church. We're not spending time seeking Him in prayer. We're not spending time in devotion. We're not spending time in Bible study. We're not focused on His love for us. And then we wonder why we have trouble loving others. And we get exhausted and we want to quit. We want to say, well, I can't do this anymore. This Christian life is hard. Our love for others is the overflow of God's love in us. And when you spend time with God seeking Him and meditating on His love for you and reading His Word and studying it and praying it, it overflows to other people. But when you don't, you have nothing in your tank to give out. And you're running on empty. And you can't love other people because you're not loving God. Loving others takes work. And so we have seen that there is always evidence of true salvation. And to faithfully serve the saints out of love for God belongs to salvation. Thirdly, our full assurance of salvation is strengthened by our service to the saints out of our love for God. Look at verse 11. He says, and we desire, which is to crave. It means to have an intense desire for something. And so the point of this writing is to have this intense desire for them to have some sort of response. And the desire is for each one of you, he says. And so they are all in need of this exhortation. So even though there are apostates in the church, he has an intense desire that each one of them show the same earnestness, which is excited fervor to do something. But for what? The answer. To have the full assurance of hope until the end. Full assurance of hope is associated with earnestness, which is to do something. Our full assurance is, is strengthened by our doing something. In particular, by our service to fellow believers. Our full assurance is not accomplished by some sort of half-hearted, sluggish neglect of the grace of God. We are to serve the saints, to love one another. Jesus said this, this is how they will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. John said in 1 John 3, 14, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. If we want the assurance of our faith, we often think back to a time when we trust in the promise of God and we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. But how is it that we know that we have faith? That is a real faith. That's actually genuine faith. I mean, we've seen that the apostates sure looked like Christians. They showed evidence of salvation. But they weren't saved. So how can we know that our faith is real? And the biblical answer is simple. Our life will reveal what God has done or not done. In our heart. That's the easiest answer. Your life will reveal what God has done or not done in your heart. The entire book of 1 John was written so that we will know for certain our salvation. He says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And then he follows that up in chapter 2 verse 3 with this. And by this we know that we have come to know Him. If we keep His commandments, our life is a revealing 
of what God has done or not done in our hearts. And this passage of Scripture in particular, we have our assurance strengthened by our service to the saints because we serve the saints, our assurance of faith is strengthened. Our service to the saints is not, not the cause of why God keeps us, but is the evidence that God is keeping us, that our, that our faith is genuine. The strength, the strengthen of our assurance of faith is, hey, I'm serving in the local body of believers. It's hard to serve the saints. It just is. You know what's easier? Being lazy. Being lazy is easy. It doesn't take a whole lot of work. And lazy laziness is just it's just easy to accomplish. If somebody if you ask somebody, hey, what are you doing today? And they're like being lazy, you don't you don't ask, well, how are you gonna accomplish that? It's just easy to do. And so how is it that we continue to this end? How is it that we that we accomplish what he's saying? He tells us we avoid spiritual laziness by imitating those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Look at verse 12. The author says, so that you may not be sluggish. I don't know about you, but I don't really want to be called a slug. Oh, you're like a slug. You're moving so slow. You know, that's that's not my dream in life. He says, so that you may not be sluggish. It means slow and apathetic. The enemy of perseverance is laziness. You struggle with a persevering faith? It's because you have a lazy faith. And after the opening of this message, I don't want to hear, Pastor, that was unloving. It's just the way it is. If that's your struggle, it's, it's what Scripture's revealing to us. Being spiritually lazy is a danger that seems to be lurking around every single corner in our lives. How often do we find something else to do? Other than making time for Bible study and prayer. How often do we neglect our spiritual lives because we think that everything else is just more important? We have to be diligent and work against being spiritually lazy. If we refuse to take steps to avoid being spiritually lazy, guess what? We're going to be spiritually lazy. I think of people who, who avoid coming to church. It starts with one Sunday. As soon it goes to another. And then another. And then another. And then another. And we think, I can be more productive with my time. I got things I got to get done today. I can't go to church. I can't read my Bible. I got too much to do. I can't pray. I'm too busy. Our faith requires work. Listen to what the words of Jesus and what He says. When He's telling the parable of the talents, listen how He says the Master responds to the one who did nothing with His talent. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. The master goes on to say, So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will, more will be given. Or for everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Laziness is linked to damnation. And I'm not the one who linked them together. Jesus did. We must work at our faith. Not to be saved by works, but faith does work. Here are the words of Paul. Philippians 2.12 Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in the presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Paul says about himself in 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Being spiritually diligent is a sign that the grace of God is at work in your life. Well, how are we going to accomplish this? The author tells us that if we want to avoid being spiritually lazy, then we must imitate. It's not a call just to go through the emotions but that we look on the examples of the faith of others that have walked before us. In the immediate context, he's saying to imitate the faith and the patience of Abraham because it was by faith and patience that he obtained the promise. The author is planting the seed of what he's going to develop later on in chapter 11. In chapter 11, we will see all of these heroes of the faith and we have the entire New Testament as well of the people whose faith we could imitate. Additionally, both Jesus and Paul told their followers to learn from them and to imitate them. If we want to avoid being spiritually lazy, then we imitate the faith and the patience of those that have gone before us. And to do that, we must have some knowledge of them. And so if we're going to gain knowledge of those that have gone before us, we have to do something. And so we should, first of all, study Bible characters. You can take your Bible and you can study a Bible character all the way through the Bible. Read about them. So for Abraham, you would study all of the relevant passages relating to Abraham and you'd read about everything that he accomplished and why he is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. You can do this with any Bible character. You say, well, well, how? Well, many Bibles have a little thing in the back of the Bible called a concordance. So you can look up the name and it will list relevant passages for that character. If you don't have a concordance, you can buy one. They're not super expensive. If you say, well, I don't want to do that. Well, you can come and say, Pastor, I want to study this character. And I will print you off relevant passages if that's what you want. Study Bible characters and then imitate their faith. Secondly, I would encourage you to read biographies of people that are not in the Bible, but were faithful and patient in their Christian life. It can be pastors, missionaries, Puritans, reformers. I don't care. It could just give give some caution before you go and buy any biographies. Make sure that they are going to be authoritative and correct. And again, if you would like help, maybe you say, well, I want to study this person. I want to study Martin Luther or whoever. I, can, I will recommend you specific books that I know are good books. A good biography will let you know the things accomplished, but also the struggles of the person. And if you want recommendations, I'll do that for you. So if you want to avoid spiritual laziness, find and imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promise. 
Read and study and imitate. In conclusion, the author is showing the Hebrew church that things belong to salvation. He does this by revealing there is always evidence of true salvation. By faithfully serving the saints out of love for God is evidence of that salvation. That our full assurance of salvation is strengthened by our service to the saints. And that if we imitate the faith of other great followers of Christ, we will avoid being spiritually lazy. The point that he is making is that he wants the Hebrews to be strong, to be confident and secure in their salvation. He wants them to be bold and willing to lay down their lives for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He doesn't want anyone to be fearful of uncertainty. He tells exactly how to be confident in our salvation. So I ask you this morning, are you living a life by faith in the promises of God? How is the faith of God being manifested in your life today? Are you trusting in His promises and are you advancing His kingdom or not? Are you living a life today of service to the saints in your local church? Do you seek for ways to serve and to help? Are you content just coming to church on Sunday morning and being part of the local congregation? Because that's what the author is speaking against. We can't just come and think, well, I did my duty. My duty for this week's all done. But we are to come and serve one another. How are you serving one another? Who are you serving today in this church? Who are you serving? And how are you serving them? Finally, are you growing in your love for God? Do you love Him more and more each and every day? Do you get into His Word? And this love, is, is this love evident in your life? Do you love the lost? Do you give them their time? Do you pray for them? Do you share the Gospel with them? Do you give your resources so that they can hear the Gospel in the first place? Do you love the church? Do you love the church enough to serve others in the church? None of it's going to just happen. You can't be lazy and expect it to just happen. You have to work. But these are the things that belong to salvation. The question is, do they belong to yours? If not, then let's talk. If they do belong to you, but not like they should, then what are you going to do about it? But stop being lazy. Let's close a prayer.